0: According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, how about Colossians chapter 2? Let's return where we were a week ago. Colossians chapter 2. We've got a couple of extra classes, last week and this week. I don't know how long it'll take, maybe we'll wrap it up today. Um, I thought maybe we could wrap it up in one single session, but that didn't happen last week. Colossians chapter 2, where we've left it with episodes 39, 40, and 41, we've actually come to a conclusion of this segment of the life of christ remember the life of christ harmony is broken down into di- different sections and uh, for some time now we've been in the jesus final week of work at jerusalem and that has 41 episodes from the, the triumphal entry on palm monday all the way to the women watching the tomb in episode 41 those are the 41 episodes in this segment of the uh, harmony the next segment is uh The resurrection and post-resurrection ministry of Jesus Christ, and we'll be starting that uh, with episode one, uh, Resurrection Sunday. The resurrection of our Savior is coming up, but before we get to that, we've got some additional points of study, and so these are just kind of bonus classes. Uh, We've given it a uh, a label. What's the label we assigned to it? Do you remember? On the website, we we categorize these as with a different heading you don't remember okay in, in any event we we've, we've assigned it as a different heading and uh, it, just two classes probably or three maybe at the most Victorious proclamation that 's what we called it that 's right uh, for in between the burial and the resurrection, and uh, what exactly is the Lord doing in between his burial and his resurrection? Is he just laying there and doing nothing, or is he actually accomplishing more of the father 's work and that 's what we 've learned when we see such passages as Colossians chapter two. And uh, Ephesians chapter four and First Peter chapter three, we observe that in between his burial and his resurrection, he was actually very busy. He was doing things, and God was the Father was doing things through him. God the Father was putting him on display, which we see here in uh, Colossians chapter two and verse fourteen, where it says, um, or verse uh, fifteen, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them. Now, the he there is God the Father, and we'll highlight that again, uh, is God the Father is the he in these verses. When he, God the Father, had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he, God the Father, made a public display of them, the rulers and the authorities, having triumphed over them, the rulers and the authorities, through him, Jesus Christ. All right, so we have our he's, our him's, and our them's sorted out in uh, in verse 15 triumphed over them through him and this is what we want to understand is part of what was taking place in between the burial and the resurrection part of what was taking place while jesus was in the grave while jesus uh, body was in the grave jesus uh, soul of course was uh, he entrusted his spirit to the Father's hands, and he had descended into Sheol, and he had a victorious proclamation that he was required to uh, to preach, and that's what we're uh, taking a look at here last week and again this week. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer, making sure that we are filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, maybe not the easiest of classes today, so let's uh, let's pray extra hard uh, <laughs> for the Father to guide us into the truth. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do uh, thank you, Father, as we come before your presence, and you know we're joking, Father. Uh, We understand that answers to prayer are not dependent upon how hard we pray for stuff, Father, that answers to prayer are dependent upon how faithful you are. Father, you provide exceeding abundantly beyond all that we could ask or think. The answers to prayer come not based on what we've earned or deserved. answers to prayer come based upon your riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And Father, I just thank you that you are so faithful to magnify your name. You are so faithful to glorify your son. Father, do so again this day as we have assembled together to learn. Father, we are presenting ourselves before you, workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So, Father, we call upon your faithfulness through the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit this day to uh, make clear to us all these things, even the deep things of God. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, really three things that we're gleaning out of this. First of all, what we see here, additional points related to the Lord's time in the grave. Point one, the cross of Jesus Christ formed the basis for God the Father's judicial rulings on our behalf. The cross of Jesus Christ formed the basis for God the Father's judicial rulings on our behalf. And these judicial rulings are seen here in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15 everything that took place judicially on friday april 3rd 33 ad we read back to verse 13 when you were dead in your transgressions and in the uncircumcision of your flesh he made you alive together with him having forgiven us all our transgressions having canceled out "...the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross." All right, so Jesus was not the only thing nailed to that cross. You understand, Jesus was the only person nailed to that cross, but not the only thing nailed to the cross. This certificate was nailed to the cross when Jesus was nailed to the cross. Understand, judicially, what God the Father was exercising when he poured out his wrath. What God the Father was achieving when his son was obedient to his design. All right, because God was at work, the Father was at work here as well. Hopefully we understand this. The real test in in, uh, Genesis was Abraham and his faith, his willingness to sacrifice his son. And that was a picture of the father and his willingness to sacrifice the son. All right. And so as we break it down and we see these things, we understand humanity was the subject of a hostile death certificate, what I call a dogmatic hostile debt debt certificate. And really to, to... go through this verse verse 14 and see the dogma the greek word dogma that occurs here okay i think it's largely misunderstood it's criticized it's hated there's folks out there that hate dogma right they say they they say it's a bad thing to hold to dogma and so forth. Well, we don't idolize dogma, but we, we want to approach it on the on a biblical basis. If there is something that is uh, dogmatic, if there is a decree from God, we want to understand what it is. And we don't believe it because it's church dogma, because some church council somewhere, or some pope, or some pastor, or somebody decrees this is what has to be accepted as dogma. All right. But if God says that it is, <laughs> if it's in scripture, it is, all right and if god says it says that there is a hostile decree against us then that decree is is binding because god's the one that uttered it god's also the one that revoked it god's the one that nailed it see when he nailed it to uh to the cross anyway dog not a bad word it's it just uh, maybe used in a bad way shall we say all right And so we have the dogmatic hostile debt certificate. And it is a debt certificate that none of us can, can pay off. It's an infinite debt. It's a debt that none of us can possibly pay for. In any event, there's, a, there's a, a worthwhile study there if you want to do an exegetical study, word for word through verse 14. You can have a lot of fun with it. But understand, it is the sentence on humanity. It's not you personally, it's all humanity. And you didn't do anything to earn or deserve it. You were simply born in Adam all right it was adam's rebellion that produced this dogma that produced this debt certificate that placed the entire uh, realm of humanity under adam's federal headship that placed all humanity under that condemnation and that's a great thing because we are universally condemned due to nothing we've earned or deserved then god can make a provision by which we can be redeemed All right. And it's not a distinction between on a relative scale between, well, who are the worst sinners and who are the not so bad sinners and who who needs a whole lot of salvation and who needs maybe not so much salvation because we're kind of better than the next guy. All right. There's none of that. None of us are kind of better than the next guy. And even if we were, who cares? Because we're all unrighteous before God's sight. We're all declared to be unrighteous before God's sight, and any righteousness we can produce is unrighteousness in God's sight. So, this dogmatic hostile debt certificate is uh, is a good thing. And when that certificate is nailed to the cross, that also is a good thing. <laughs> all right, That means that there is provision made for us to do away with that, because God has done away with that. That certificate was nailed to the cross when Jesus was nailed to the cross to the cross all right and so um we uh can recognize the provision that was made the provision that was made on a universal basis it wasn't uh it wasn't only certain certain names from that certificate that were separated out and 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 atoned for but the certificate itself was what was nailed to the cross all right so there's a totality there with respect to the value that the cross had related to humanity again not individuals within that certificate the entire certificate nailed to the cross the nailing of that certificate disarmed the rulers and authorities and provided for jesus immediate triumphant display So he took it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, when he had disarmed the rulers and the authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. This event, this event was a public display. The crucified Savior was a public display. It was a display of the Father's triumph. Satan thought it would be his triumph. And looking at it, he saw his defeat. All right? He thought it was his triumph. This is why the wisdom of this age, which the rulers of this age had never understood. If they would have understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory, we're told. Okay? So, which is another Colossians passage, right? <laughs> no, that's Corinthians. That's Corinthians. Now, this immediate triumphant display has a follow-up triumphal prayer. Don't confuse the two. I think it's, it's unfortunate that this triumph here that we see uh, in verse 15, uh, made a public display of them having triumphed over them through Him. That's a past completed action. That's a once and for all event. Having triumphed over them through Him means that when Jesus Christ was obedient, when Jesus Christ achieved that work, then that was the completed triumph of of God the Father. That was His completed victory. Don't confuse that with the follow-up triumphal parade, which is the dispensation of the church, it's according to 2 Corinthians 2.14. That parade is still ongoing. That parade is still today. That, that is us. That is us marching in the triumphal parade of Jesus Christ for the totality of the church age. God the Father is demonstrating this redeemed body of people in Christ. Okay? And he's not just displaying his, the person of his son on the cross. He's now describing, that's the head of the church, he's now describing the body of Christ, the, the re- remainder of the church, as the living sacrifices throughout uh, the history of the church age, so when you read second corinthians two fourteen and if you're tempted to link those passages, if you're tempted to to link the triumph of second Corinthians two with the triumph here, just be careful with that. You can link it, but link it carefully in the sense of a past completed triumph and a present ongoing triumphal parade okay, and I think you'll do you'll do just fine if you link it in that. In that nature now, when he disarmed the rulers and authorities, what specifically were they disarmed of? are they Do they have no tools left of any kind? Are they completely disarmed? Is it a total disarmament, or what is the nature of the disarmament? What precisely was it that was removed from them out of their arsenal okay and uh, for this, we go to Hebrews two join me there, Hebrews chapter two. I believe the cross was disarming. And specifically, the element that it disarmed is defined for us also in Scripture, in Ephesians 2. I think sometimes, and I probably have voiced it myself, we think of their disarmament as being a total, complete disarmament in the sense that they have no weapons of any kind left over of of any sort, or they have no more devices left over of any sort, okay, well, we're not ignorant of his devices. He still has devices. He still has schemes. But there is at least one element of disarmament that is indisputable. And I think we see this here in, second, in Hebrews 2. That's this fear of death. And that's the power of death. That is what's broken. That is a weapon he no longer has for those who are now in Christ. You understand. So the specific armament made void is the power of death and fear of death which Satan uses to enslave fallen man. Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15. It says, therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. He identified as true humanity, flesh and blood. Okay? That was his incarnation. In resurrection, he's flesh and bone, but in uh, his incarnation, he was flesh and blood. Different idioms there, and I think that's significant. In any event, uh, he partook of the same that through death he might render powerless. Now, through death, how many deaths did Jesus die? He died the spiritual death, and there's one provision, but he also died the physical death, and there's an additional provision. But through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. And he might free those who through fear of death. Now, let me ask, is that fear of spiritual death or fear of physical death We're subject to slavery all their lives we think of this we kind of get schizophrenic when we think of this in different ways we sometimes think of this being spiritual death but then when the element of fear comes in sometimes we then want to switch to the physical side of things and say well people are scared of physical death right you watch this guy walking across a tightrope and you're oh, is he going to fall okay is this fear of physical death and is it fear of physical death that gives the devil weaponry over the unbeliever? Or is it the fear of spiritual death? Is it the fear that's the product of being eternally separated from God the Father that really gives the adversary all the armament he needs? What is that fear that shrinks away from the light? and puts that person so firmly in darkness that he of course he's operating according to the powers of the air the prince that is now working in the sons of disobedience men hate the light and then because their their deeds are evil so that fear of death i don't i don't view that as physical death there i think that's the fear produced by spiritual death okay okay the antithesis of which is the peace that's our bequest from Jesus Christ. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. All right. But the specific armament made void is the power of death and fear of death, which Satan uses to enslave fallen man. And so born again, hey, death, where is thy victory? Death, where is thy sting? I'm walking in the newness of life. I have fellowship with his sufferings. I know the power of his resurrection. I'm I'm considering myself to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. I'm walking in the newness of life. All the weaponry that Satan ever had over me as an unbeliever is gone. It's totally gone. and I can be thankful for that. So I I can be an active participant in this parade we're talking about because Jesus had that past completed display. I'm now pleased to be the ongoing present display in time. All right. So that was the first point of study. The second point of study takes us to Ephesians chapter 4. We consider something else that happened while Jesus was in the grave. Jesus Christ descent into Sheol. Ephesians 4.9. Join me there. Ephesians 4.9. Jesus Christ descent into Sheol provided for his captivity of the captives. And I like using Shaol in my notes because it's Hebrew and it's acceptable in uh, in a kind venue like church with ladies present. But you know, if I was to sit here and start talking about Jesus going to hell, uh, that would be a little bit rougher language. I almost opened this morning saying, "All right, we're going to hell today," and we are. We're going to go to hell today in our studies. All right, in our studies. And uh, we're going to go to the pit of hell. We're going to go to the deepest pit of hell today, to where these spirits are imprisoned. We're going to talk about captivity captive. We're going to talk about gifts received and gifts given. And uh, some things that we can chew on, because I don't know that I have all the answers this morning. Okay. But I'll probably keep using Sheol rather than hell, just because it's... Not considered as uh, vulgar or off color, maybe. All right. Ephesians 4 9. This expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? And he who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. Okay, now this is Jesus in his person. Uh, we clearly understand this to be in his soul spirit, okay? Not in his body. His body laid in a tomb. His body was, you know, underground in the sense that he was in the, the cave carved into the hillside with a stone rolled out front and sealed. Uh, his body laid there and uh, buried to whatever depth that cave was, was uh, situated. Uh, his body did not descend into the lower parts of the earth, but he did. Okay, he did we're told that right here. He did he descended to the lower parts of the earth And we're going to see that not only from ephesians. We see it's in agreement with romans We see both ephesians and romans are based upon psalm 68 And then all of these passages ephesians romans psalm 68 connect powerfully with second peter chapter 2 With what was he doing down there? Anyway, why did his why did his soul descend so deep? What was his soul doing while his body was laying in the in the uh, jerusalem grave? and uh and so forth he told the thief this day you will be with me in paradise all right so they did they had to descend to sheol they didn't go to the to the torments compartment they clearly went to the abraham's bosom compartment that's where lazarus was taken when he died his soul was carried away by the angels into abraham's bosom and so this is where jesus is going to go this is where the repentant thief is going to go he said this day you will be with me in paradise And so now he's in the deepest parts of the earth. He's in Sheol. He's in the compartment of comfort, the compartment of paradise, the compartment of Abraham's bosom. And whereas Lazarus, Lazarus didn't say a word in that chapter. You realize that? Lazarus was totally silent. It was the rich man across the Gulf that kept blabbing on and on about how uh, much it hurt and how uh, he wanted some water and how his uh, his brothers needed to get saved and It was the unbeliever that couldn 't shut his mouth, kept blabbing and blabbing and blabbing and Lazarus didn 't say a peep in that chapter; he was just being comforted in abraham 's bosom the whole the whole chapter long. Jesus though um, does have something to say, just as Abraham had something to say, and he's going to preach and he 's going to proclaim to the prisoners we're told by the time we get to that uh second peter passage now let me back up a little bit because i started in ephesians 4 and 9 but this comes as a uh as a explanation for verse 8 and verse 8 comes as an illustration of verse 7 okay which is a quotation from psalm 68 so let's look at what we're looking at here um This expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? Well, he's explaining verse 8, which says, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. All right, so Psalm 68 is now brought into an application for the church as it relates to spiritual gifts, as it relates to what happens with Jesus Christ seated at the right hand of God the Father. What happens with Jesus Christ in victory? All right. Therefore, it says when he ascended on high, the ascension of Jesus Christ, not just when he was raised, not just his resurrection on that Sunday morning, April 5th, 33 AD, but when he ascended on high, when he was seated at the Father's right hand, when he was given as head over all things, even to the church. When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and... He gave gifts to man. So we have two activities. He led captive. He gave gifts. You see that? Jesus Christ had two activities when he ascended. He led captive. He gave gifts. Now, there's a whole scope of doctrine there related to the church. and I'm not going to go into that today. I just want you to see it for what it is. And then we'll go back to Psalm 68 and see that for what it is. But this relates to Jesus Christ as the head of the church okay and ephesians 4 is is emphasizing the the blessings we have in the church that we're one body now in christ and and it doesn't matter for jew or gentile that's irrelevant we're now one body in christ there's one lord one faith one baptism one god and father of all over all through all and in all we are the greatest pedagogical dispensation there's ever been because we are in christ the beloved son of god the father and to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of of christ's gift that's what we're studying in romans 12 on sunday mornings the measure of christ's gift the proportion of faith the blessings we have to be in the church and uh, the measure of christ's gift jesus christ gave gifts to men what does this expression mean except that he descended into the lower parts of the earth and he who descended is himself also he who ascended far above the heavens so that he might fill all things because he went lower than anyone's ever gone. He's now gone higher than anyone's ever gone. He's been given a name above all names. And here's some of the gifts that he's given. In verse 11, he gives some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. That fourth one is a hyphenated gift. There's only four some as's there. All right? There's not a fifth sum as for teachers, separating out pastors as the fourth and teachers as the fifth there's only four sum as is there and so the fourth sum as is pastors and teachers the hyphenated uh, ministry there for the equipping of the saints for the work of service the building up of the body of christ and so the gifting that jesus christ does is he takes the holy spirit gives the gifts to believers when they're saved but then jesus christ takes those gifted believers and gives them to the congregations as he distributes for the equipping of the saints for the work of service All right, so you can think of your pastor as a gift of Jesus Christ to this flock, all right, or the evangelist that he provides, or the gifts of Jesus Christ to this flock. Doug is a gift to this flock, all right, from Jesus Christ who assigns these things as the head of the church. The Holy Spirit gave me my gift, gave Doug his gift, but Jesus Christ gave Doug and I to this flock, okay? That's why Ephesians 4 should be thought of as different from romans 12 or first corinthians 12 now under this let's understand he ascended he led captive he gave gifts he gave gifts let's go back to psalm 68 see was jesus giving or receiving here in psalm 68 It is more blessed to give than to receive. Jesus did both. (laughs) Because he received and he gave. Psalm 68. So point A. Psalm 68.18 foretells the Lord's victory and captivity of his captives. Psalm 68.18 foretells the Lord's victory and captivity of his captives. You know, I want to read the whole chapter, really. Um, Specifically, though, verse 18, you have ascended on high, you have led captive captives, you have received gifts among men. Ephesians said he was giving gifts. Psalm 68 says he's receiving gifts. Even among the rebellious also, that the lord god may dwell there interesting okay so ephesians says he's giving gifts in the context of head of the church where he's giving gifts from the standpoint of his exalted position he ha- he is in a position to give gifts but in from the standpoint of his ascension he is receiving gifts Okay, so in Ephesians, the perspective is head of the church, and so giving gifts is appropriate. But from Psalms, the standpoint is descending and ascending. In an angelic context, he's receiving gifts. You have received gifts among men. So we have, uh, is this a problem? Is this a contradiction? No, it's not a problem at all. (laughs) The same Holy Spirit that inspired Psalms is the same Holy Spirit that inspired Ephesians. And if he wants to change the word from receiving to giving, he's free to do that. He's adapting a psalm for a church application, free to do that. Okay. But let's talk about these gifts that he is receiving. And um, why it is now that uh, we don't need, uh, that believers who die don't go to Abraham's bosom anymore. Why believers who die don't go to the, why don't they go to the comfort compartment of hell anymore? because jesus christ has received those gifts and he's been pleased to take them now to heaven that's right and uh we'll deal with that but you'll notice you can't separate out the angelic out of this passage look at that in the verse before the chariots of god are myriads thousands upon thousands the lord is among them is at sinai in holiness uh this is this is a, a conflict passage with angels in view oh i could i'd love to teach psalm 68 just take a whole week to do this starts with verse 1, let God arise, let his enemies be scattered, let those who hate him flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melts before the fire, let the wicked perish before God, but let the righteous be glad, let them exult before God. Yes, let them rejoice with gladness. He promised his disciples, he says, right now you're weeping, but you will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Okay? Because this psalm is about to be fulfilled if Jesus Christ achieves the victory on the cross. Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Lift up a song for him who rides through the deserts, whose name is the Lord, and exult before him. A father of the fatherless, a judge for the widows, is God in his holy habitation. God makes a home for the lonely. He leads out the prisoners into prosperity. Only the rebellious dwell in a parched land. O God, when you went forth before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, the earth quaked, the heavens also dropped, rain at the presence of God. Sinai itself quaked at the presence of God, the God of Israel. Now consider all of the spiritual warfare that took place when he delivered Israel out of bondage from Egypt. Consider the spiritual warfare that took place when he redeemed humanity from bondage to the slave market of sin. All right? There's so much involved in this. It's It's a beautiful thing. All right. The uh, verse 15, a mountain of God is the mountain of Bashan. A mountain of many peaks is the mountain of Bashan. Why do you look with envy, O mountains, with many peaks? At the mountain which God has desired for his abode. Surely the Lord will dwell there forever. So we have a conflict between Bashan and Zion and it was the bowls of Bashan that surrounded Jesus Christ in Psalm 22. All right. Well, there it is. <laughs> More doctrine. Ephesians interprets Psalm. Point B. Ephesians interprets Psalms to define the Lord's descent. Okay. Ephesians interprets Psalms. Because you'll note psalm doesn't say he descended to the uttermost parts of the earth it just says you have ascended on high you've led captive your captives if all we had was psalm 68 we wouldn't know anything about the descent into sheol we would just think that maybe you know he came down to earth that was the only descent we know about he comes down to earth walks among men and then he ascends again But Ephesians interpret Psalms to define the Lord's descent deeper than the incarnation on the earth. Ephesians specifically identifies the lower parts of the earth. The lower parts of the earth. Matthew 12 has an expression called the heart of the earth. Philippians 2 has the expression under the earth. Romans, by the way, agrees with the Ephesians interpretation. Romans agrees with the Ephesians interpretation. Okay, we'll take a look at each one of these. But understand that Ephesians, when he says, What does this mean he ascended? In order to ascend, you've got to be low. Right? That's like in order to repent, you've got to, you know, in order to come back from somewhere, you've got to first be somewhere. It's built into the concept. That's why no believer can apostate. No, I'm sorry no unbeliever can apostatize right unless you're standing in the truth you can never depart from the truth only believers can commit apostasy because no unbeliever even stands in the truth to start with so these are things that are kind of definitional and the apostle paul makes very clear both in ephesians and in romans That passage from Psalm 68 that talks about ascending requires a descending to precede it. And a descending greater than simply the incarnation on planet earth. That when he came to earth, when he humbled himself, when he was made for a little while lower than the angels, when he was born of a virgin, when he was born in the manger, when he walked this earth, yes, he had descended. But that was not as deep as he would descend. He would descend even deeper deeper because there were other folks that needed to be rescued as well not just those that were still alive on the earth he had to descend even deeper there were still folks in Sheol that needed to be rescued out so uh, Matthew twelve forty. we have this related idiom it's not called lower parts in Matthew 12, it's called a uh, heart, the heart of the earth in Matthew twelve forty. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, in the heart of the earth, okay? The little Jerusalem cave wasn't deep enough to be called the heart of the earth. Okay. His body laid there, but Jesus himself descended to the heart of the earth, the lower parts of the earth, the the uh, dimension of Sheol. Uh, in Philippians 2.10, it's called the dimension of under the earth. You've got in the heavens, on the earth, and under the earth. And you, And you know the directional language of up and down and high and low and above and beneath, those are directional terms that convey a reality, but... We identify that these dimensions are not spatial. All right? So you can't dig down deep enough to reach hell. You can't climb a ladder high enough or build a Babel Tower high enough to get to heaven. Okay? We use the language of high, low, up, down, above, below uh, as uh, expressions to relate the dimensional positionings, but they're not spatial. They are uh, positional. Anyway, uh, Philippians 2.10 gives you your cosmology of the universe in the heavens, on the earth, under the earth. Every name will bow at the name of Jesus. Every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. In, on, and under prepositions that relate dimensionally to heaven above, earth where we are, and then hell beneath or Sheol beneath. Likewise, Romans, Romans ten seven. We weren't, we weren't that long ago we were in Romans 10, Romans ten seven agrees with the Ephesians interpretation that in order to ascend, you must first descend. And this, uh, by the way, this is a, another free adaptation, Paul is adapting Deuteronomy here, changing, uh, you know, who will ascend into heaven, who will, instead of saying crossing the seas, he says descend into the abyss. Who will descend into the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. Descending into the abyss. Where did Jesus descend to when he died? Not his body. We know where his body laid. Where did his soul descend? Where did his soul descend? So, Jesus Christ descended into Sheol. Why did he descend into Sheol? Well, there were people there that needed to be received. Jesus receives gifts in the rescue of both Jews and Gentiles, Psalm 68, 18. Jesus receives gifts in the rescue of both Jews and Gentiles. And then he distributes gifts to his church. Both are true. Both are true. He receives gifts according to Psalms and he gives gifts according to Ephesians. Both are true got no problem with the word being changed from give to receive when the old testament is quoted in the new testament jesus receives gifts in the rescue of both jews and gentiles believers that had died by faith and they were saved and they were redeemed but their sins had not yet been removed all right Understand that. Even the greatest believers of the Old Testament, not one of them had their sins removed because they're removed in Christ. Their sins were atoned for. Their sins were covered. Their sins were forgiven. But they were forgiven because judgment passed over them while judgment looked forward to the coming cross. That's why Moses and David and Job and Daniel and all the Old Testament believers, they didn't die and go to heaven. They died and descended to the compartment of comfort called Abraham's bosom, called paradise. And it was on the comfort side of that great gulf chasm, right? The abyss chasm, gulf in between paradise and torments. In between paradise and Sheol and torments. The whole realm is called hell, but there is a comforting compartment and there's a tormenting compartment within Hades, within hell. Everybody goes to hell prior to the cross okay now today it's only the unbeliever that goes to hell today you and i ascend to the third heaven because that's where paradise presently is when paul was caught up into paradise he was caught up into the third heaven paradise is no longer in that that comforting compartment of hell paradise itself has been transferred into heaven when we are absent from the body we are at home with the lord so no believer today goes to hell Only the unbelievers today go to hell. So Jesus receives gifts in the rescue of both Jews and Gentiles. Believing Jews, believing Gentiles, of course. And then he distributes gifts to his church. Different activities. Entirely different activities. So Ephesians 4 is an adaptation from Psalm 68 and we're fine with both. We're absolutely fine with both. Now, he did something else while he was down there. He didn't just grab a bunch of people and say, okay, let's go. <laughs> right? He didn't just, uh, you know, arrive. You can imagine the shout he must have received or the welcome he must have received from, uh, you know, every believer, every believer that's ever died from from Adam and uh, Eve and Abel, right? Just Abel. And he was the first believer to die. He was the first believer to, to reach that compartment. My question for you, though, what was... Uh, What was Abraham's bosom called then before Abraham got there? (laughs) Cain murdered Abel. Abel's soul went to this compartment of comfort in in Sheol. I don't have an answer. Nobody does, but I'm just curious. It it couldn't have been Abraham's bosom yet. Abraham went in there yet. All right. Now, now, More than just showing up in Sheol and having a good time and a reunion. I mean, they were all old friends of his. You understand that. Jesus, I imagine, had lots of fellowship with with Abraham, with Job, with Daniel, with Noah. Noah walked with God. You you know, I imagine it was a huge reunion for Jesus in in those three days. But beyond that, and then saying, okay, let's just kind of kill 72 hours now, and we'll we'll get out of here on Easter Sunday. He had more to do. He had preaching to do. Okay? And he didn't have to preach to Noah, didn't have to preach to Daniel or Job or Moses or David or any of those guys or Abraham. You know, did he rename it? Did he say, All right, Abraham, it's my bosom now? <laughs> okay. He actually had a proclamation to preach. And he preached in prison. He had a prison ministry. A prison ministry. Point three. Now the third passage we've got to deal with is this one here in 1 Peter 3:19. 1 Peter 3:19. Jesus Christ descent into shale, provided for his prison proclamation. And I believe this is a separate issue than his captivity ca- or than his uh, gift reception. Than his gift reception. We need to ask ourselves is prison proclamation the same or different than his gift reception? And his captivity captive or his captive captivity? is that the same or is that different than his gift reception? We know the, the, the language is different, but is it different language to communicate the same thing? Or is it different language to communicate two different things? Somebody stole First Peter out of my... Oh, there it is First Peter 3.19, all right. Here's the third item. Jesus Christ ascended to Sheol, provided for his prison proclamation. 1 Peter 3.19 Now, verse 18, I guess for context, Christ also died for sins, plural, once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. And until this happens, no believer is going to go to God. That's why the Old Testament saints went to Sheol instead of going to God. But now we can come to God. No one comes to the Father but by me. Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. All right. Those uh, participles are usually applied to Christ. I think more specifically, it's better to describe us, but that's all right. It's both, really. We're put to death in the flesh and made alive in the Spirit, too. That's how we can come to God. But then also, in which, no matter how you take those participles, they connect to verse 19. In which, in the Spirit, also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. That's what we key on. That phrase right there. Pastor Theme wrote an entire book based on that phrase. Alright, Victorious Proclamation. We title our own uh, segment here of, of, uh, of Life of Christ, Victorious Proclamation. To communicate what Jesus was doing in between his burial and his resurrection. What was he doing in the Spirit? Notice, in which? It wasn't in the flesh, it was in the Spirit. Put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. In which? In the Spirit. Also, he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. So it was in the spirit he went to preach to spirits. You see that? In the spirit he went, in the spirit he went, and made proclamation to spirits. Spirits in prison. All right? Now, to be fair, nothing in this passage says that, that he did this while his body was lying in the tomb for three days. okay? But it is a natural conclusion to come to. Because Ephesians and Romans both say that that's when he descended into the deepest parts of the earth. That's when he led captivity captive. And so it it makes sense to reconcile them. Um, But that's a conclusion you come to when you compare Scripture to Scripture and you're, you're putting them together. Could he have spiritually gone to Sheol prior to that you know could have been sitting around galilee eating fish with his disciples and said uh you know wait right here would you i'm gonna check out of my body here for a moment and spiritually i'm gonna travel down to Sheol and and uh, go preach to some spirits in prison you know he you know i maybe he could have done such a thing John was in the Spirit when he was caught up to heaven and received the book of Revelation. Uh, Ezekiel was in the Spirit when he was caught between heaven and earth and saw some different things in his travels. Jesus could have been in the Spirit and left his body and gone down to Sheol and done this. However, the Bible never describes an event like that. The Bible does describe his body going into the grave okay, and doing so in connection with the display the Father had of a victorious son. okay, And so I can't think of any other occasion or event or venue or time when Jesus would have gone and preached this other than the display the Father had of him in victory at the cross. okay, Because the Father's display was a crucified, victorious Savior. And when Jesus went to proclaim to these uh, spirits in prison... I think it has to be in connection with that as well. But having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Who once, let's learn a little bit more about those spirits. Who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. See, there's so much argument about who these spirits are. And the verse tells us who they are these spirits are first of all imprisoned spirits all right they're not fallen angels that are roaming around the earth seeking to devour they're imprisoned spirits they were also disobedient during the days of noah we're told when the patience of god kept waiting in the days of noah during the construction of the ark in which a few that is eight persons were brought safely out through the water Alright, so there were disobedient spirits during the, t- the days of Noah when uh, eight persons were brought safely through the water and these spirits then were imprisoned. Corresponding to that, and then it goes on, Peter's got some other things he's going to teach out of that. But we pick it up here in verse 20 and we understand who these spirits are. Now, Subpoint point A, imprisoned spirits are often thought of as fallen angels. Who abandon their proper abode. Imprisoned spirits are often thought of as the fallen angels who abandon their proper abode. There are fallen angels who are bound. There are fallen angels who are bound. 2 Peter 2 4, Jude 6 both talk about fallen angels who are bound. And we'll have plenty of chances to look at these guys in our upcoming angelology classes. <laughs> All right? <clears throat> but I think some people are very quick to blend 1st Peter with 2nd Peter. They want to blend spirits now in prison with angels under chains of darkness. Because both are mentioned by Peter, one in 1st Peter, one in 2nd Peter. But, And I understand uh, 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 the, the, the reasons why it would be tempting to maybe link those. 2 Peter two four says, If God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. And that's a verse that mentions the days of Noah. Verse 5, Do not spare the ancient world, but preserve Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Now, I understand why you would connect 1 Peter with 2 Peter here, because we've got the days of Noah. We've got hell. And we've got uh, pits of darkness. Okay. But I don't see any preaching here to those spirits. I see judgment, reserved for judgment. And then also, when I do see preaching, it's Noah that's preaching on the earth. A preacher of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly or might we call them the disobedient. Okay. The Jude parallel in Jude 6 mentions specifically chains. Angels who do not keep their own domain but abandon their proper abode. He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. And they're not preached at either. I don't see preaching towards them either in Jude 6 or in Second Peter 2. They're in chains. So what do you preach to them? They're gonna, they're gonna, they're judged. They're gonna be judged. They're reserved for judgment. Why preach at them? But who's being preached to? In 1 Peter three nineteen, he makes in the spirit in which he went and made proclamation. What did he proclaim? Proclamation of what? Proclamation of what? And what is a proclamation? What is, a, what is a, a gospel message? What is a preaching? Just a nana nana nana? <laughs> Losers! I'm the winner! You're in hell! Okay, we get that. We are in hell. You are the winner. But what are you preaching? And what is the response to the preaching? how will they hear unless someone is sent all right what were they supposed to hear and who are these guys anyway are they the fallen angels who abandoned their proper abode or not often thought of point b not often thought of are the offspring of such angels not often thought of are the offspring of such angels which are also spirits. All right. In fact, once their Nephilim bodies are, uh, are destroyed, that's all they are, are spirits. Not often thought of are the offspring of such angels, which are also spirits, that were disobedient in the days of Noah. They were disobedient in the days of Noah. Noah was a preacher of righteousness for a hundred years. And uh, what was this world of the ungodly? What was the response to Noah's preaching? The response to Noah's preaching was no response. (laughs) The response to Noah's preaching was disobedience. We could go back to Genesis chapter 6, and and, and I'm not going to do a ton of it with it. Let's just take a quick peek at it. Uh, because it's coming up in greater detail probably excruciating detail in the uh, angelology class but um genesis 6 notice verses 4 through 6 verses 11 through 13 i think we see disobedience i think we see the world of the ungodly the nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of god came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them So fallen angels, human women, hybrid offspring. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. The demigods of the uh, angelic human lineage. And the Lord God saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Every intent. Only. Continually. (laughs) Wow. And the Lord was sorry that He had made man on the earth. And He was grieved in His heart. And this is the uh, impact of the intrusion when the angels abandoned their proper abode. When they abandoned their domain and they intruded into the realm of humanity. And actually corrupted humanity to prevent the seed of the woman potential from defeating them. Verses 11 through 13, the earth was corrupt in the sight of God and the earth was filled with violence. Remember, fornication and bloodshed defile the land. And if every intent of the thought of the heart was only evil continually, how long does it take before every square inch of planet earth is corrupted and defiled? The earth was corrupt in the sight of God and the earth was filled with violence and God looked on the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth all flesh and i wonder if Noah and his family were the last pure humans remaining may and uh, god said to noah the end of all flesh has come before me for the earth is filled with violence because of them these offspring these mighty men of old these men of renown these demigods in this uh, age of legends so to speak. (laughs) We're reading the Bible? We're reading Greek mythology here. All right. Now, this is the Bible. The earth is filled with violence because of them, and behold, I'm about to destroy them with the earth. The judgment of Noah's flood was upon them and the earth, in which eight souls were rescued. All right. So, when Jesus Christ has gone to preach, when he's gone to proclaim, who did he go to proclaim to, we're told? The spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient during the days of Noah. All right. Was he preaching to the fallen angel uh, patriarchs, or was he fallen, preaching to the demonic offspring, the Nephilim offspring? And then what was he preaching? What was he preaching? If if preaching is an offer, what was he preaching? (laughs) Now I got two minutes left to do this, and I almost don't want to because, like I say, I don't. I've not come to a conclusion on this. Highly conjectural. Highly conjectural. Somebody asked me once, well, if a, fallen, if, a, if a Nephilim is not in Adam, could they be saved? All right. Point C. This prison preaching, if directed to the Nephilim spirit, we've got to solve that first of all. Who is he preaching to? The fallen angels or the Nephilim offspring? But this prison preaching, if directed to the Nephilim spirits, may have included an offer of salvation. I'm not saying it did. I'm just saying it may have. Only because preaching invokes responses. Preaching invokes responses, either accepting or rejecting. Noah's preaching invoked responses either accepting or rejecting. All right. And yet only 8 souls were brought through the flood. Such preaching may have included an offer of salvation or a realization of salvation. And please understand this is a highly conjectural, I'm not saying it is, demon salvation. If possible, it was not the baby's fault. He couldn't control who his father was. You know, he was born in in with a fallen angel nature, not in Adam, but in fallen angel. Okay, could he go to he- could he go to heaven? Could he go to hell? Demon salvation would not have been on the basis of a kinsman redeemer. Let's understand that. Because the kinsman redeemer redeemed Adam's race. The last Adam redeemed Adam. So demon salvation would not have been on the basis of a kinsman redeemer, but on the basis of captive captivity. On the basis of captive captivity. When the seed of the woman crushes the head of the serpent. If there is such a thing as demon salvation or Nephilim redemption... Do you like that better than demon salvation? The demons believe and shudder, we're told. Do they go to heaven? Wait a minute. (laughs) All right. If there was a potential response, if Nephilim could have responded in the days of Noah, If Nephilim could have responded in the days of Noah, maybe some did. But they didn't live through it on the ark. They died, along with every other Nephilim that rejected Noah's preaching. In which case, all the Nephilim are then plunged into the abyss. But, are there two compartments from the Nephilim, as there are two compartments for humanity. Okay? Is there captivity? Are there neph- is there Nephilim captivity? It's not fair to do this in two minutes. <laughs> in any event, they're not saved because they place their faith in the seed of the woman uh, as kinsman redeemer. All right? They're not human. They're not human. Jesus has not identified with them. He did not take their place as a substitute. However, his work was reconciling to the invisible realm. The reconciliation of the cross had value both for things visible and invisible. Rulers and authorities, principalities and powers were reconciled according to Colossians chapter 1. So if there is a Nephilim redemption or a demon salvation... It would not have been on the basis of a kinsman redeemer, but it would have been on the basis of captive captivity when the seed of the woman crushes the head of the serpent. If this is true, and I'm two minutes long, (laughs) okay, I don't think we'll have a whole third hour on this, but we can at least come back and consider a couple things next week, and then uh, get ready for resurrection uh, episode one of uh, the next episode. Um. He proclaimed to the spirits in heaven. In prison. He proclaimed to the spirits in prison. And we got to decide. When he received gifts, he received men. When he took captives captive. Is that the same thing or is that something different? When he took captives captive, might it be that he actually took Nephilim that had responded in the days of Noah? Did he take them captive? Because they'd been captive in Sheol since the flood. Are the gifts received the same as the captives captive, or are they different? And like I say, I don't have all these answers. I'm just saying. These verses are deeper than most people even think about. That's why I'm glad we're... And maybe if I'd have taught this a year ago before our current angelology study, I'd have never even thought of it a second time. Okay? I'd have just said, yeah, it was a nyan nya speech. It was just a ha, I win, you're in hell. My father's the victor. Look at me. And it's not invoking a response, because how could they respond? But then he takes captivity captive. Who was captive? Was, was, was David a captive? Was Noah a captive? Was Daniel a captive? Was, was Noah, I mean, were they captives? They were being comforted. He received gifts, he brought them to heaven, but were they captives that he took captive? Are they now his bond slaves? But he does have dominion over the rulers and the authorities. Anyway, more to say on that. Not maybe in the Life of Christ class, but in our upcoming angelology. We'll have to return to this in our upcoming angelology. So you guys are ahead of the game. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness, for your mercy, love, and grace. We thank you, Father, for all things, even the deep things of God. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.